I'm Tom Morello, host of Maximum Firepower. A weekly podcast focusing on the music, the moments, and the movements that have shaped my worldview and left an indelible mark on me as an artist and activist. Correct with Maximum Firepower. For you and me. This is Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. I'm Tom Morello, and you are listening to Maximum Firepower. I'm very excited to have my guests today, Tom Bojour and Richard Beanstock, who have overseen one of my favorite books in quite a while. It's called Nothing But a Good Time. It's an oral history of what is sometimes pejoratively known as hair metal, the sort of the spandex era of the Sunset Strip, the bands that made it, the bands that didn't. It's a form of music that I have a complicated relationship with that we'll get into. But welcome to the show, fellas, and thank you very much. Hey, thanks, thanks for, for having us. us. Yeah. So let's just start. First of all, what was the impetus for writing this book? Because really since uh, Penelope Spheres' The Decline of Western Civilization to the Metal Years, which kind of put a stake in the ground in exploring the hair metal slash spandex scene of the 80s, has there been a, not since then, has been like a complete document of that time, the, the triumphs and the tragedies of that time. So what was your initial impetus to uh, go on this journey? I think uh, both of us are guitar journalists. We both work for Guitar World magazine and we're big fans of this stuff. But by the time we started working at the magazine, I, I'm a little older than Rich. I started in 94. It was as if this stuff had never happened. It was in that dark age, like where, you know, obviously Van Halen and Randy Rhodes were still covered, but like a Nuno Betancourt or a Red Beach, you were not going to get to talk to him in this. And so there was never really a period for us in our formative years as journalists where it was germane or acceptable to talk about this stuff. So I think for both of us, you know, we had discussed doing this book for a while and it just seemed for both of us an opportunity to really go in deep with a bunch of musicians whose work we loved and was really like deep in our 16 year old brain, yeah. but, but professionally we hadn't had a chance to talk yeah. to. Well, I'd say, I mean, the one thing about for, for people who are listening, who may not be a fan of the genre whatsoever it's almost a Shakespearean narrative arc of like what happens with these groups and these bands. And like, there's a great deal of like sort of drama and intrigue and interest and human trauma uh, that has nothing to do with the music whatsoever. So let me just sh share why I love the book, why I was interested in having you guys on the show. You know, growing up, I would grow up on heavy metal music. And then I had one foot firmly in the world of when my friends sort of peeled away to um, punk rock, I went with them, but I never left. I always had one leg clad in spandex, you know. So when I was practicing my eight hours a day at an Ivy League university, my gigs, I was dressed much like you know, Warren Demartini was in the rat videos with a bandana around my thigh, etc. So when I moved to Hollywood in 1986, I had a tremendous amount of like shredding ability under my fingers. I was expecting to find myself immersed in this world of Steve Vai's and Nuno Betancourt's and Tony McAlpine's. And instead, it was Faster Pussycat and Jet Boy. And it was all of these bands that had a tremendous charismatic appeal to the audiences that they were playing to. But honestly didn't seem like they could play their way out of a paper bag and so it was like i was like there's no room for me my first experience was like you know the music connection magazine where you you know i answered an ad for you know a up-and-coming sunset strip hard rock band and i had got a connection with the you know the bass player of the band on the phone he said come down and jam and then the manager called me up and you know he was just straight to business he just said how long is your hair and i said it's not that long he said 
well, would you be willing to wear a wig? This is the second sentence out of his mouth. <laughs> second sentence out of his mouth. And I'm like, Brass I'm like yeah. And, and, he's, and, and he's like, look, we have, you know, we have interest from agents and this, that, and the other. We're looking mm-hmm. for a very specific image. I'm like, you haven't heard me play a note of music. He said, well, we, you know, we have a particular thing that we're looking for. And so that ethos is one that is really part of what's at the core of, of this music. So if you tell me like, to what do you attribute after having written this book, sort of the rise of this strain of that music? To look at it more broadly, I mean, and this is one of the things we really tried to get across in the book and what to what you were talking about, you can read this book, you can love this music, you could hate this music. But one thing that's undeniable when you read this book is just the work ethic and the drive and the, the insane single-mindedness of these bands and what they go through in order to make it. So you can hate Motley Crue, you can hate Poison, but you can't deny what they achieved and what they had to drag themselves through to get there. You know, most of us can't even if we play an instrument, we play in bands like we can't hack that, you know, only a very few can. And so you see this just intense devotion. A lot of them have to their instrument because you have guys like your Warren D. Martinis, your Nuno Betancourts that can play, you know, above and beyond what a normal person can achieve on an instrument. But even the ones that don't do that, I mean, just what they put into these bands and just how they go at it 24-7, 365, with just this insane devotion, uh, we really tried to get that across. I think that, that's, a huge, that's a huge part of the story is there's this puritanical work ethic, you know, that the bands come across as, you know, like wild partying guys, but they party wildly. And then at 2.30 a.m., they go and they put up flyers for the next three hours around town. Then they have to get up and they have to go to band practice. You know what I mean? Like, it's mm-hmm. like, it's a drive. that, And I had that too. And, and the, the one thing that we all shared with this ethos was there was no plan B. Like, I had a degree in political science and I was 1,000% certain I was never going to use that because the only thing I wanted to do was rock. And I see myself in their stories. You know, I was not able to join Jet Boy because I didn't have like the right cheekbones. But that drive of like, we're going to outwork the other bands is something that is really sort of unique to this particular period. And I think to answer your other question, it was a combination of MTV embracing this music. And then within this culture of musicians, the absolute lack of ambivalence about fame. So like you have these bands who even when they were playing the clubs were playing in their minds arena shows. And so when they become famous or when they have to do a big video or they, the stylist is like, try this on, try that on, they're ready to go. They are not like, oh, am I cool? What am I, you know, what am I telegraphing? So I think that there was a real two-way street of of these kids being completely game to sort of like ride the rocket. Yeah. And the rocket being there for them to ride. Yeah. And like, you know, yeah. Well, when I saw so I, my first show that I paid money to see in L.A. was at the Troubadour. It was Faster Pussycat. And I had read, you know, I got all like the free, like the L.A. Rock Review and the Rock City News, which are like the free papers. And that seemed to be like the hot band, you know, one of the hot bands. And I, I was so, I was sh- sure I was going to see, you know, Steve Vai histrionics on the fretboard. What I did see was a frothing mass of rabid fans, 80 percent of whom were female, who were just like. You know, the band was peppered with just solicitous notes throughout the show and lingerie. I mean, it was just, it was crazy. It's like they were like, it was part boy band, the the vibe. Mm-hmm. And they really couldn't play at all. I mean, literally like sort of at all. And yet they were sort of at the peak of 
you know, like sort of like what a rock star could be in a room on a particular night. And it made me just go like, I was misinformed. (laughs) But instead, there was like this whole new (laughs) formula, you know, that was tied into the cat house and whatnot. Now, I think that like the origins of the like patient zero for this was Van Halen. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So tell me a little bit about that, because like the template that these bands, you know, and Van Halen did it the best and they did it the great. But but like the archetypal, you know, mm-hmm. front man and guitar player, et cetera, et cetera, was Van Halen. Talk a little bit about that and how the other bands tried to kind of come along in their wake. Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. It was Van Halen. And that's why the, the book starts off with Van Halen, basically. But Van Halen are not necessarily there throughout the book, because in a way they're they're the archetype, but they're not part of the scene they sort of are but they're sort of not and one of the things that i think was interesting that tom and i maybe didn't realize to this extent um i certainly didn't when we were doing this was that van halen you you think of van halen getting signed off the strip and then you have this explosion and you have motley Crue and dockin and rat and all these other bands but what these bands say in the book to a person is that Van Halen gets signed. And I think it's Mick Brown from Dawkins says this. He's like, we figured, you know, that door was going to open up and 10 more Van Halens were going to walk through. He's like, but what happened was Van Halen walked through that door and that door slammed shut. And then what you have is years of, you know, the Go-Go's and the Plimsolls and like all of this new wave and punk stuff. And, you know, a lot of these guys are cutting their hair and Quiet Riot is sort of signed, but they're not. And then they're Dubrow and like nobody can really do anything. Yeah. Until really Motley Crue comes along mm-hmm. um, at the beginning of the 80s. So Van Halen is the band that they all wanted to be. And they all talk about that. And interesting, like, interestingly, they talk as much about David Lee Roth or maybe more about Roth than they do even sure. Eddie because it was such a visual thing. And they were yeah. all there watching it. And like, right. you see that on the stage. So that is what they wanted all wanted to be. But it took a little while for that to pick up. Like Van Halen happens and Van Halen happens in a vacuum almost. And Van Halen happens because Eddie and Dave are undeniable. Not because the labels wanted this sound at all, but like you had to have those guys, especially Eddie. Yeah. And I mean, there's a very, it's not in our book, it's in, uh, it's in Ted Templeman who produced uh, all of the, you know, the first six great Van Halen records or five. He talks about going to sign, the Van Halen being the template is almost accidental. He talks about going to see Van Halen at the Starwood with Mo Austin. And when they sign Van Halen, they're not even signing, quote unquote, the band Van Halen. They say Eddie Van Halen and they're like, he's the next Jeff Beck he's the next actually and Ted Templeman says he's like the next John Coltrane like he's so free he's so he's so good we need this guy yeah on Warner Brothers record the singer we're not sure they were even thinking like of getting Sammy Hagar so like the whole thing almost happened by accident and so that's why when Van Halen explodes it wasn't like the labels had this appetite for that formula they were like we got these guys but we don't want the rest and frankly you know um it's Rudy Sarzo who says in our book, all of the other people with long hair playing guitar rock on the strip were regarded as dinosaurs. Right, because they were part of sort of like the 70s bell-bottom holdover uh, yes. b- before the new template came in. So, so another, another one of my favorite scenes in the book is there's a backstage practice amp guitar shred-off between <laughs> Nuno Betancourt and Vito Brada. Nuno Betancourt, the guitar-slinging hero of a extreme and Vito Brada the guitar slinging hero of White Lion who were two of the titans of that period when it came to shreddery because that was one you know we there's the bands that could hardly play but had the right cheekbones but there really was 
a segment of this music that were great guitar players. They were really great guitar players. And there was a gunslinging mentality that I very much had when I moved to Hollywood. It was like, you don't want to just be a great guitar player. You want to beat that guitar player. <laughs> you know, Describe that bit of the book because it was pretty fantastic. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny because um, and maybe it's just like that exact year that you came to L.A. because it's like the early 80s. You actually hear people talking about going into those clubs and just being blown away. Like you yeah. had to be Jakey Lee. You had to be all yeah. these guys. And then obviously the end of the 80s, you have your Vito's and your Nuno's. Like it might have just been like 86, 87 when you showed up that yeah. all of a sudden you yeah. felt there was no place for guys who can play because you yeah. had this thing going on where guys in the book talk about it. There's this camaraderie. But there's also you want to one up the guy next to you because, look, there's hundreds of bands on the strip. You know, they all sort of look the same. It's like, how do you get ahead? How do you, you know, sort of show yourself? And being a, a gunslinger on guitar was one of the ways you have this thing where, you know, Vito and Nuno have this sort of little backstage battle. You have a thing in the I think it's in that same chapter where Carlos Cabazzo talks about in the 70s when he was in his band is Snow in LA, they get a call for, at the snow house that George Lynch wants to come up on stage at a snow gig <laughs> and battle Carlos. And Carlos is like, do that on your own time, at your own gig. Like you're not coming up <laughs> on stage at my gig, you <laughs> know, and doing this. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah. And so like, there were these little moments like that. And they're all insane moments because it's just like, what are you really going to do? You know? And like the, the Nuno Vito thing is the same thing. It's like, what are they really going to do backstage, you know, yeah. except I guess, you know, have an eight finger tap off or whatever yeah, it's yeah, going to yeah. be. But yeah, I mean, you know, these guys, they're watching each other as much as they're pursuing their own creative, you know, spirit, like they just want to be better. And then the dude next to them have better yeah, hair, yeah, you know, it, play better licks. In that, in the story is, as they tell the book is they had never met in person. Yeah. They just, they just knew of each other. And mm -hmm. so it was like, it was like two unneutered dogs at the dog park. You know, who's like, oh, there's that guy. Okay, there's that guy. And without saying a word, they each set up their practice amps and sort of shredded at each other. I just thought that was fantastic. I'm Tom Morello. You are listening to Maximum Firepower. It's nothing but a good time. The oral history of hair metal. The authors Tom Bajour and Richard Beanstock are my guests. A couple of the narrative arcs. One is the winger story, which I just thought was just incredible. So just briefly tell me the sto story of <laughs> wing. We, for those who are listening, if you have any memory of winger at all, it's from a very prancing, handsome singer talking about dating a 17-year-old against her father's wishes. That's sort of like if you have any impression of winger, that's what it is. But the story goes a little bit deeper than that. And the where Kip Winger ended up, the singer, is it was very fascinating. Yeah, I mean, the Winger, I mean, the Winger story, there's so many different facets, but one being Kip Winger and the uh, keyboardist Paul Taylor come out. I mean, they're both super accomplished musicians. They're both in Alice Cooper's band and they come out of that. Kip wants to do the solo project. He hooks up with Red Beach, who's also an accomplished guitarist. He's doing a lot of session work for Atlantic Records. I mean, he's on a Twisted Sister record, some Fiona stuff, some other stuff, but the thing that's interesting about Wingers, they really come at this. They're all experienced guys, right? Eventually, Rod Morgenstein from the Dixie Dregs is on drums. They get pigeonholed as like the, you know, if, if any band is sort of targeted as being, you know, nothing but fluff, you know, and no substance whatsoever, it winds up being Winger for other reasons. And like Kip is very handsome. He has a hairy chest. He does... And he works you know, ballet. It. He works both yeah. those things yeah. in the video. Yeah, he does videos. ballet, yeah. like pirouettes yeah. on yeah. stage, yeah. all this stuff. But, you know, he comes across in the book like he, it, it hurt him what happened to them because he really does believe in them 
as being, and you know, you can say whatever you want about the music, whether you think the songs themselves are good, but he believes like they were guys who really worked their whole lives at their individual craft. Mm -hmm. You know, the other thing that's interesting about them is that Kip Winger also gets targeted very specifically and individually at the end when all of this goes down at the end. And it's like, whether it's, you know, Stuart on Beavis and Butthead wears the winger shirt and that he's like the classic geek, but then also the Metallica Nothing Else Matters video where Lars Ulrich is throwing darts at Kip Winger, a picture of Kip Winger's head. And even in the book, Kip Winger's like, you know, Lars Ulrich couldn't hold a candle to Rod Morgenstein on the drum. You know, he's very... um, He's hurt by what happened because he's he's like we were real musicians. You and then, know? He, but like, then he gets the it. last laugh because he wins a Grammy for for classical classical music yeah. composition. Yeah. He wins a Grammy for classical music composition, which is just like I, I, I was very unexpected unexpected twist right. there. I um, still don't know if Lars Ulrich is like, damn that guy. You yeah. know, like, <laughs> he got me in the end. But you know, like, but yeah, he did all right for himself. Yeah, yeah. The biggest bare bottom spanking I ever saw one band give another was on the uh, Monsters of Rock Stadium tour, which was uh, Kingdom Come, Metallica, Dokken, Scorpions, and Van Hagar. And, you know, I was there. I wanted to see all of it, so I got there early. Kingdom Come did a fine job. Metallica, who I think had just Master of Puppets was just, I, I or maybe the next right, I'm not sure. But they just, just, I mean, they absolutely destroyed the place. And it felt like a new world had opened up and we were all just in awe of them and then Dawkin came out and this was they it were was a disaster they were doing their best i mean this was literally <laughs> don Dawkin had on a, a bejeweled robe you know and he was alone again without you and they had just ridden the lightning and it was just it really felt like you know people talk about like the baton passing from nirvana and stuff i you could make an argument that that tour certainly was a harbinger of what was to come and i, and I want to talk about sort of i want to wrap it up and talking about like sort of the, that change but the one i would say the biggest surprise for me in the entire book was a band that i had been wholly dismissive of and saw in a slightly different light was white lion who the singer of what's the white singer of white lion's name is mike tramp mike, mike tramp, tramp. Tram, of course and again he was just a gorgeous lion maned guy and Dane, that and, yeah. and that one of the controversies in the white lion world was that he was writing like social justice lyrics in those songs in a time when, you know, she's my little hot dog bun was what, you know, like everybody else was aiming for. I had never thought, I'd never heard White Lion in that way before, but I just thought that was, just, and it was interesting that like White Lion, White Lion of all bands was one that like had ideas about, you know, that were beyond sort of the normal pale. Anyway. And he really, I think he really, it, that's one band actually, and they pointed it out, and I hadn't thought of it. I'm a big White Lion fan, but they pointed out there, if you go through their catalog, there really are no misogynistic lyrics. Yeah. I mean, you could, somebody can probably go look now and find one, but it's actually very, yeah, it's, it's not that. Yeah. Strangely. Yeah. Um, okay, so in, in wrapping up, let's let's talk about where where it went from the dinosaurs to the mammals, so to speak. And there was that you know the famous instance where somebody from Warrant walks into Columbia Records and the cherry pie poster is down and the Alice in Chains poster is up. What was the cause of the demise? As briefly as you and as succinctly as you can, what was the cause of the demise? What happened? I think first of all that one thing is that it the music had already run its course like it, it like near, grunge didn't take out a music at its peak. The music had already become triple derivative. You had bands like bands like Tough or Pretty Boy Floyd were bands that had grown up on Motley Crue. And so you had bands imitating bands imitating bands. Culturally speaking like look you look like Lollapalooza didn't come out of a vacuum. You know that's 91. 
your bands, other bands, the under Jane's addiction in particular, things were percolating. Mm -hmm. You know, it, the idea that there was a quote unquote alternative to this culture and this world did not happen the day right. Nevermind came out. That's right. So the thing was superannuated anyway. And I believe that the one thing that remains inexplicable, though, is your standard rock and roll decay, a trend that declines. What happened to the individual members of the bands, the fact that it became absolutely untouchable is more bizarre. That, yeah. for example, you know, we have, um, there's a story about Cinderella touring in 1994 in our book, or 93, and they're going to Seattle to play a show and they want to buy airtime on the radio station to advertise their show. And the radio station is like, we can't even have your name. We don't want your money. We can't have your name <laughs> wow. on the show. Like yeah. it was a total, uh, you know, I, I hesitate to use the cancellation word cancellation, but it seems apt, you know, it, like it was, the, it was the, absolutely. The, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, so that result remains somewhat inexplicable that there was a total rejection of every producer, every musician, every, you know, that these people could not work for a decade. Yeah. Bizarre. Yeah. And, and, and for a fan, as someone who was a fan of that music, I, I tell you, like, from my point of view as someone who liked that music and then joined the ranks of the of the other side was – there were other kinds of hard music that talked about the devil and this, that, and the other. Then there, this was hard rock music that talked about groupies and stuff like that. And then it, there was hard rock music with Soundgarden, with Primus, with Jane's Addiction, even like Living Color, that talked about stuff that I cared about. You know what I mean? Like it was like it, I, I could relate to in my life. And yet the music I used to be only able to be, be able to find that like in punk rock music. But now there were kick ass Zeppelin riffs and, you know, Chris Cornell's wailing athletic voice and Dave Navarro's shredding solos. And yet it felt like it was artistically awesome, not just what I had to settle for. And for me, that was when I, I felt that change. Like you couldn't have a Britney Fox in the same world as a Jane's Addiction anymore because it just looked so foolish by comparison if you're calling both of them rock and roll. And I think also, you know, for a teenage like lizard brain at that time, it's like it's it's fulfilling the same Yes. The same hole, like That's the right. big riffs and the and the histrionic vocals and all that. You're still getting all that, and yet you don't have to listen to your older brother's music. You know, like that, if he was into Quiet Riot and Twisted Sister, like that's lame to you eight years later. It's yeah. like anything, any sort of cycle. So this is the new thing that's filling that same, you know, sort of void or or the thing that all like, you know, to just make a sort of blanket statement, like, you know, teenage and preteen boys love, like that just sort of over the top type of sound. You know, and I think also, and one of the things that is picked up on in the book that we always think of grunge coming in and killing this music is like Fred Curry from Cinderella says this and Tom was sort of, you know, touching on this, like the, a lot of the bands weren't doing their best work at that time anyway, even before grunge comes in, you know, I mean, it's like sort of inside baseball to say, but it's like Heartbreak Station isn't as good as Long Cold Winter, you know, yeah. and like, Flesh and Blood isn't as good as like Look What the Cat Dragged In and like like right. all these bands like it's not because I remember being a fan at the time and it just didn't appeal to me in the same way. I still loved all these bands, but I just wasn't listening to the new records they were putting on the same way. And that's all 1990, you yeah. know, like before all this other stuff comes in and quote unquote washes it away. In conclusion, there is a stadium tour with Motley Crue, Def Leppard, Poison and Joan Jett that's going around. I mean, once pandemic time in 2022 so it's like some of those bands that began like absolutely in the gutter are as 60 year old men playing the, the, the same songs going to be playing to you know 80,000 people in 
50 U.S. cities. What does that say about the music and about the culture and its in cockroach-like endurance? Well, I mean, I think it says that, you know, for people our age, this is the new classic rock. That's like, right. This is it. You know, we're, the baby boomers are kind of like checking out. This is it. The music that goes in your brain when you're 16 is the music that goes in your brain when you're 16. Yeah. And you're going to carry it for the rest of your life. And um, I mean, the success of the book, the, 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 the dirt, the this, that, the other thing, this is the people with the buying power and the nostalgia right now. You know, and, it, and it's, it's part of the classic rock canon. Nothing but a good time is, could be on next to a Boston yeah. song now. Absolutely. You know absolutely. I mean? yeah. uh, well, thank you guys so much. Please check out the book, Nothing But a Good Time. It's an oral history of hair metal and the Shakespearean triumphs and tragedies of the bands that lived it and some of whom survived it. Tom Bujor and Richard Beanstock, thank you so much for your great book and for being on Maximum Firepower. Thank you so much thank for you, having us. It was great. Yeah. Thanks uh, so much. Until next time, take it easy, but take it. Let foes of justice tremble. This has been Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. Hear this episode again or listen to past shows right now on the Sirius XM app. Search Maximum Firepower.